Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and with me, as usual, is Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? It is going pretty good here in snowy Ohio. A little early in the year for snow um, being here, but uh, it looks nice. It's pretty. There's not much of it, so that's good. Yeah, I saw that. That uh, It looked nice. Nice little dusting there. It's about just 20-ish degrees here. It's kind of the first seasonally appropriate temperature day we've had in a while. Uh-huh. I think it was last week. We had a day where it was like in the 60s. Yeah, it just doesn't feel right, does it? Yeah, and in like eastern Wisconsin in November, that's not that's not normal. That's not good. But yeah, we we've yet to really have any snow on the ground. We've had some frost, uh, but not that much. We're handling it so far better than Arkansas grounds crew was handling the <laughs> snow yesterday by <laughs> by making a hockey rink on their football by spraying field. water on it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. It was funny because people were laughing at that. And then there were comments like, well, yeah, the water is warmer than the snow. It'll melt it for now. (laughs) And then what happens? Yeah, I think for college football coverage, uh, the two places I get most of my information at this point are the college football Reddit and the sickos committee Twitter page. Those those are both excellent things. There were some good games yesterday. Um, Wisconsin lost. Of course, because oh, yeah, I saw that they all they also didn't cover the 36 point over. So, yeah, I think they scored 34 points combined in that game. So it was a typical Big Ten, you know, good time this time of the year. Honestly, like the, the best game I watched yesterday was Illinois and Purdue. It was a good game and just a classic Big Ten football weather matchup. <laughs> it is fun when you get into the meat of like the Big Ten schedule and you get the random games that are really good. What else have you been up to? Oh, well, I watched a lot of college football yesterday, but I'm going to go ahead and throw out my media check-in, which is college basketball is back. Mm. And I don't know. I think basketball is always kind of our, you know, it's a second-place sport to football. There's no doubt about that for both of us. But I love college basketball. Like, mm-hmm. I like the NBA. I can follow the Bucks and, you know, all that. But um, I love college basketball. It's fun. I love seeing all of the small schools that, you know, match up. You get a lot more upsets. I don't know. I think it's fun. So I am very glad that it's back. I do like the level of chaos that exists in college basketball and just kind of the the mundane, lower quality of play uh-huh. in a good way. Whereas like in the NBA, if you leave a guy open who's a shooter, he's going to hit a three, right? Probably going to hit the shot. Like, and I, I, I don't know, like obviously there's exceptions to that, but you know, if you leave Steph Curry open, he's going to hit the shot. And whereas in college, it's like just the overall quality is lower. So like that is not a given. The scores are lower. It it does make it more exciting to watch. There's more variation in offense and defense. You know what I mean? Not everyone's running the same plays with the same mm-hmm. type of people. I don't know. It's fun. When, when else would I care about Cincinnati versus Eastern Kentucky in anything? But I'll probably at least have that on today. Yeah, it's the same appeal that like college football has to me over the pros where you you can see teams that run radically different offenses um mm-hmm. you know you you can have a team who throws it 70 times a game which you're just not going to see in the nfl or the opposite you know a team who who never throws the ball yeah i think college sports has that like perfect balance of um 
coaching and development that you get in high school sports, but with the ability and execution trending more towards pro sports. Yeah, there is a there is a lower limit to how much the lack of quality adds to the enjoyment. Right. I not that long ago I watched uh I want to say they were eighth graders because my nephew was playing football. And like, okay, that's maybe a little bit too low to be entertaining. <laughs> right. But <laughs> But yeah, it, there's a good balance there. Yeah, yep. So that's um, that's kind of what I've been up to. It's just a lot of a lot of college sports. It's that time of year. Reading wise, I finished reading the Inspector Barlock Mysteries by Friedrich Durenmont. Okay, and they're as the name would imply, they're mysteries. I've never really read a mystery. I don't. I don't guess I've ever read like a single actual mystery novel. So is it like Sherlock Holmes? Like that kind of thing. Uh, I again, I I don't have much to compare it to. I enjoyed it. I forget how I even came across this author. He was he was like mainly a playwright. He was Swiss, and they were really enjoyable. I I kind of understood a little bit of the thrill of reading a mystery novel and picking up on little things and like developing. Like, okay, I think it's this guy. I think this mm-hmm. guy is the, is the murderer. Um, so I can definitely see the appeal there. I'd like to try and explore more of that genre i don't think a lot of them would probably appeal to me that much um for some reason like like agatha christie has never really appealed to me as someone i want to read right but uh worth exploring more because i really enjoyed that um i did a lot of that reading while i was in door county on vacation last week nice so that was fun i've posted some pictures i know that people have seen door county is just a great place to go for I loved being there in the fall. Um, obviously, it's more of a summer place that people go on vacation. You know, by the time we were there, a lot of the stuff is closed. You know, October mm-hmm. 31st is kind of the, one of the big cutoff days. So some of the shops that we normally go to were closed. But it was nice to be there at the time we were there, just kind of relaxing. It was me and Katie and our parents. Yeah, I was sad that we weren't able to make it to that. That was that was going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a it was a cool little house. How close to the water were you? Were you? We weren't really on the water. Uh, it was off a little bit. We were more, you know, in the in the woods. It was a nice, relaxing place to be. Uh, the weather was cold and rainy most of the time, which is fine. That sounds like, perfect. <laughs> that's kind of the the kind of vacation that we enjoy. One where we can, you know, do some little targeted trips out. There's some bookstores we always like to hit up. Uh, I can't say enough. If you're ever in Door County, you have to go to the Peninsula Bookman in Fish Creek. Um, it's just the coolest used bookstore. Nice. So we always hit that up, drop some money there. Um, and then, you know, we hung out a lot, did some reading, uh, watched a good amount of sports. There's a lot of good football on. So it was a great, much needed and relaxing vacation. Yeah, it sounds like it. And you got to hang out with Macy the dog. Yeah, yeah, it was cool to be around a dog for the first time in a while. You know what's not cool? <laughs> yeah, we have a this is a longer banter session because I think neither of us want to get into <laughs> the story. <laughs> I think deep down. Today we're going to be talking about a vessel called the Carina Sea. I'm going to be drawing from the MAIB report on the incident. Funny enough, I I found it because I was on the website for the agency that's like the Spanish equivalent of the MAIB or the NTSB. Uh huh. And some of the reports that sort of cross national lines are they have an English one and a Spanish one. And oh, I happened cool. to I happened to come across this one. 
that was just an MAIB report. Um, and it kind of caught my attention because I was looking for something a little bit out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. So Carina C was a UK registered cargo vessel built in 2010, owned and managed by Carisbrook Shipping Limited. I'm already like, it's one of those things where it's always harder when it's a newer story and like built in 2010. It's like, oh, no, this one's going to be recent. Uh, so right off the bat, I'll say this is not a shipwreck story. This ship is still in operation, uh, but I'll probably still be using the past tense when talking about the ship because that's just what we're used to. This falls more under the maritime disaster portion of our jurisdiction. For sure. Karina Sea was one of 10 identical vessels built for Karisbrook in China in 2010. She had a registered length of 100 meters and a minimum safe manning of five, which is interesting. I was I was fascinated to see that a ship like that doesn't really need that many people. Yeah, that is a, a shockingly low number of people. She will have nine on the day that we will be discussing here. Like, that still doesn't seem like enough. Uh, so another thing here is the the layout of her holds. So Karina C had two cargo holds with six pontoon-type hatch covers on the forward hold and seven on the aft hold. Each hold had a movable bulkhead that could be used to to subdivide those holds further. So essentially, that allows for up to four different compartments if needed, mm-hmm. depending on what you're carrying. To move the hatch covers and the bulkhead partition, the ship's gantry crane was used. Um, an interesting note here about those hatch covers, and I'm sure this applies to other ships as well, they're not interchangeable. Interesting. They're all different. There's a diagram in the report that I can share, but um, we'll be talking about a stack of hatch covers in this, and so stacking them and placing them had to be done in a very specific sequence. So are they all different? Or are some of them interchangeable? Do you know? Uh, I believe they're all different. There's like a, it's kind of like a puzzle when you look at the, when you look at the Uh diagram where they all fit together in a very specific way. And you can see how if you did them out of order, it would sort of mess up the whole process. That's, that just almost seems like a design flaw that you wouldn't make them interchangeable. It sounds weird. And I, but I think when you see the diagram, it makes a Mm -hmm. lot more sense why you would want them interlocking this way. So let's talk about the gantry crane. <clears throat> I don't think I knew what a gantry crane was before reading this for this episode. Uh huh. It's a major part of this episode, so I had to read about it. It's a name I've. It's it's a thing I've heard before. I I wouldn't have been able to identify one or tell you what it was. Right. A gantry crane is a crane that straddles the workspace or the lifting area, and it usually has wheels for moving loads around. Once I saw pictures of them, definitely something I'd seen before. It's like what you think of in every port area. That and like, it's also not something specific to ships. Right. Something that people might use in like a workshop. If you're lifting something heavy, or you load it onto this and you can just wheel it place to place. Uh huh. So in this case, the workspace that's straddled by the gantry crane is the line of hatch covers on the deck of the Karina Sea. Yeah, I'm actually looking at some pictures of it now. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it's a really simple workspace and like, it's really not a very big vessel. So like, I guess I can see like a crew of nine easily being able to handle this. Uh, so this crane on Karina Sea was operated from a platform at the top, which is accessible by a ladder. Only the chief officer and the second officer were permitted to drive the crane. That's listed explicitly in the report. I, I have to assume that applies to the ship's master as well. I would assume that it's probably an actual like certification you have to have. Um, so regarding the crew, um, like I said, on the day of this story, Karina C had a crew of nine, 
Uh-huh. Four Eastern European officers, a Ukrainian debt cadet, an able seaman from Cape Verde, and three Romanians. Uh, one of those, an able seaman, an oiler, and a cook. Um, I can't help but notice they're all from countries that aren't the UK. There's no way that any of that will play into blame for this, is there? Actually, not that I know of. Wow. Um, the way that Karisbrook divides up, it's, it's kind of a complicated thing that I couldn't quite figure out. There's like multiple little sub companies under it that seem like they're attached to specific vessels or groups of vessels. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. That didn't really play into the story here. Nice. You know, and things like nationality. Uh, the master of the vessel was 63 years old from Poland. And he had 20 years of experience in the master's role, 10 of which were with Karisbrook. He had worked extensively on K-class ships. That's the type of ship that Karina Sea is. And he had worked exclusively on Karina Sea since 2015. Okay, so he's very experienced. No issue with experience or experience specific to this vessel. The master is kind of only a side character in this, though. The chief officer however, is more involved. He was 56 years old from Ukraine, holding the same certificate of competency as the master. So something that we see a lot, just the nature of the personnel available and the uh, spots needed to be filled. You know, very often you have lower officers who have the qualifications to serve as a master. We see that even in some of our older stories where, you know, like, if a guy like, you know, the the um, ferry in the San Francisco Bay, where the guy's vessel sinks, and then like a week later, he's the chief officer on the, the ferry that sank his own boat. So the chief officer, he'd been with Karisbrook since 2008, and he'd worked as a chief officer since 2011. So a lot of experience, tons of experience here. Uh, he had about six years of experience on these K-class vessels. And our last major character here is the second officer. He was 59 years old from Poland. He joined Karisbrook in 2012 and held an officer of watch certificate of competency. He'd completed 10 contracts on K-class vessels. Five of those had been on Karina Sea. And his current contract had started in February. He was coming to the end of it uh, on the day that we'll talk about here. Uh, The last major thing here is the watch rotation. We've We've gotten into specifics about that on a few episodes because mm-hmm. um, it does you know, play an important role here. Merchant shipping regulations dictated that each crew member was required to have 10 hours of rest within any 24 hour period. Uh, and at least one block of this time had to be six continuous hours. I think that's always the thing that I'm most worried about when you have a crew that's this small is that you run into issues of time. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not really a matter of like, oh, this isn't enough people to get every job done. It's like, is this enough people to give everyone adequate rest and get the job done? Especially if, you know, if the crew this small is someone sick, is someone just out of commission for a little bit, like all of a sudden you can get pretty thin pretty quick. Yeah, and it really highlights, again, more of those challenges of being the ship's master in this it's just like scheduling for any other job. You got to make sure that you have coverage for everything and that everyone has that time off. Um, so suddenly, you know, those nine people, it, you don't have all those people available at the same time, typically. So this brings us to the incident portion here. So Karina C arrived in Sevilla on May 21st, 2019 to load up with a cargo of cement. So this loading started two days later on the 23rd. 
Just before midnight, the vessel's second officer came on watch. Um, So this is the night of the 23rd into the morning of the 24th. Okay, and this is the second officer. This is he's Polish, correct? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I was thinking of their names. The names are included in the report. I didn't include them in this episode because I don't find it terribly relevant. It's also way easier to keep track of who's who with just titles. It's also yeah, it's much easier to say second officer than literally any Polish name. <laughs> That's true. Uh, So the ship's chief officer had been on cargo watch since 6 p.m. And he stayed with the second officer until loading was finished at 1.15 on the morning of the 24th. The second officer was on watch until 5.40 a.m., at which point he was relieved by the chief officer. Oh, he's back. He was only gone for like four hours. Right. And that's after working a full shift um, and then staying to observe the loading process so that that right away struck me as at very least interesting because that's not a ton of that's not a ton of time off there right right we'll talk more about the rotation and the the rest later on because that's definitely a big part of the investigation one of the co's duties during the first hour of his watch was to conduct a draft survey so draft survey is just rechecking the draft of a vessel after any sort of change in her displacement from loading or unloading cargo Mm-hmm. So with that done, shore workers arrived to take off the cargo loading pipes that had been used to fill the ship. And this was completed by 8.30, at which point the CO lifted the cargo hatch covers and had the crew begin cleaning cement dust from the hatch combings. <laughs> Just sounds unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, a lot of dust here. So that had to be done before the covers could be replaced uh, and sailing could commence. Is that just to ensure like a good seal, I'm assuming? I assume so. It it seems like you wouldn't just want, you know, this cement dust getting in all your stuff. Right. So the original plan had been for the departure pilot to board Carina Sea at 2 p.m. However, around 9 a.m., the ship's master was told by the vessel's agents that the berth currently occupied by Carina Sea was needed by another ship. So this meant that Carina Sea would have to vacate the space earlier. Uh, with the departure pilot boarding at 11.30 instead. Okay. So bumping things forward about two and a half hours. Right off the bat here, this reminded me of some stories from, uh, say, Take to the Sky, where complications arise when schedules have changed, things are mm-hmm. moving forward or backwards, and people kind of lose track of of what is where. Right. Especially if you're tired and you haven't slept but for mm-hmm. like three hours. Uh, so the master relayed this information to the CEO who countered that he would need all available hands to get the cleaning done in time for that new departure. And he specifically requested for the second officer to be called back on deck, which was agreed to by the master. Is this the second officer who like just got done on watch? It is. Uh, So the second officer arrived back on deck around 930. And he got to work sweeping cement dust on the starboard side of the aft cargo hold. I just want to say, if this ship can safely operate with five people... It surely can't get all this stuff done with five people because it seems like they're struggling with nine. Especially having to now compress this with even less time from what they had before. So in addition to the second officer, on the starboard side was one of the vessel's able seamen. Another able seaman and a deck cadet were on the port side completing the same cleaning task. To allow for this cleaning to get done, the chief officer was operating the gantry crane, moving hatch covers as needed. 
At 9.42, the CO lowered a hatch cover into position on the forward hold. Then, at 9.43 and 19 seconds, began driving the crane aft towards the aft hold. Probably not good when we put the seconds in there. No, I think this is the first time we've come across uh, seconds uh, involved here. This is, well, there's your problem. (laughs) So at this time, the second officer was finishing his sweeping and starting to walk forward along the walkway. So remember, he's at the aft uh, portion of the ship. The crane is now coming aft from the front. Mm -hmm. So during his walk, the second officer stopped briefly to talk with the able seaman who was working on the aft hatch cover and then continued walking forward. At 9.44, the chief officer paused just short of the stack of hatch covers uh, at the forward end of the aft hold. So he's coming aftward on the ship. He gets to the stack. He needed to raise the crane's lifting bar to clear the stack. Mm -hmm. So the crane is paused. He's raising the bar. At the same time, the second officer arrived at the forward end of the aft hatch cover stack. So they're converging at this to the same place. Yes, they're converging basically at the front end of the aft stack. Okay. At 9.44 and 10 seconds, the second officer climbed up on the cargo hatch combing and stepped toward the gap between the crane and the stack of hatch covers. Uh-oh. Just as the second officer was entering this gap, the crane's lifting bar cleared the stack allowing the chief officer to continue in his task of driving the crane aftward. The second officer was trapped and crushed between the stack and the crane's ladder access platform. It's not great. Hearing the second officer scream in pain, the chief officer immediately stopped the crane, moved from his driving position to look down on deck, and then seeing the second officer, you know, in distress, went back and reversed the crane. So he's sending it forward on the ship. Mm hmm. The two able seamen and the deck cadet also rushed to the scene uh, on hearing the second officer scream. When the chief officer got down to deck, the second officer was lying on the walkway where he soon lost consciousness and stopped breathing. And just to set the scene fully, this is all still while they're moored at the dock, right? Like they're still tied up. This is still before they've departed. Okay. So the crew immediately began administering CPR. The chief officer contacted the the ship's master via radio, telling him that the second officer had, quote, fallen, and he asked for an ambulance. That doesn't quite seem what happened, but I I get it in the the moment. It doesn't really matter, does it? (laughs) So the master arrived on location in less than a minute. He saw the the second officer needed urgent medical assistance. Uh, He went back to the ship's superstructure uh, for better reception, and he called the vessel's agent. The agent then alerted emergency services. So they don't have the ability to directly call from the ship? I don't know. He was calling the agent, so I assume he would have had the ability to call. I wonder if it was just easier to to get the agent to do it. You know, right. you're, you're trying to control a pretty chaotic scene. You probably that I don't believe was ever like listed as one of the issues with this. So it, mm-hmm. it seems like that was standard procedure. I guess also, like if you're the captain, you don't necessarily know how to tell emergency crews like where you are. Like you don't know the what's the address to the port. You know what that's I mean? That's true. So the master also called Carisbrook Shipping. So that's the, you know, the ship's management and informed them that the second officer had suffered a fall. After going back to check on the second officer, the master left the deck, assuming that there was nothing else he could do at the moment. The chief officer 
he got back up on the crane platform and moved it further away to allow you know space for the second officer to receive treatment. Mm-hmm. The first responders on site, uh, it was a team of Spanish police coming on board around 949. So all this is kind of happening very fast. This is about five minutes after the incident has happened. Mm-hmm. The crew continued CPR, uh, including the use of the vessel's defibrillator, mm. which I think in this, you probably try everything you've got. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, you're 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 going to go for it. <laughs> um, at 10.05, two emergency medical teams arrived. So this consisted of a doctor, a nurse and four medical technicians. The chief officer repeated his understanding of what happened, that the second officer had been injured by falling from the combing onto the walkway. Is it possible that he legitimately thinks that? Like, he's not trying to cover anything up, but like he's just assuming, like, hey, this guy fell. Yeah, that's the, that's the only thing that he knows for sure has mm-hmm. happened. Like, he's not aware that he kind of is part of this incident, necessarily. That's what seems to be the case here. It's true. Yes, this had happened. He had he had fallen from this to the walkway. And some of his injuries were likely from that. Mm-hmm. But again, this is after he had been crushed between the crane and right. the stack. Right. No one at the time seemed to have been aware that that was the initial problem. However, the report does note that even with that knowledge of the crushing incident, as we'll see later, the extent of the injuries that he sustains it essentially doesn't matter that the that this emergency team doesn't know about it. I, I was going to say, actually, like I don't even know that that would have changed the situation necessarily, would it? The doctor from the medical response team pronounced the second officer dead at 11 o'clock. And just kind of looking for initial causes, the possibility of a heart attack was suggested as the cause of death. Mm-hmm. As like the, the technical cause of death? Right. So, I mean, idea being maybe he suffered a heart attack and then fell and sustained these injuries. Um, so that's kind of where the story is in the initial aftermath of the incident. It's like a it's a good reminder of how dangerous this work is. Where's the ship safer than tied up at port? And still, like it's a dangerous environment. Yeah, that was one of the motivations to do a uh, one about this incident because we we do essentially take the loading and unloading process for granted mm-hmm. when we talk about these stories. That's not even something we normally discuss. Unless it's relevant to, you know, and I know in some of the fairy stories, it's been relevant to like the balance of the ship, mm-hmm. um, how these things were loaded. But yeah, the the actual dangers involved in the loading of a ship is not something we consider a lot. Well, and also even this process of like when this accident happens, like in my job, unfortunately, one of the realities is that this is that we deal with accidents and I've had to deal with fatal accidents. And mm-hmm. there's like a lot of information that comes at you really quick and you kind of go through that process of in like 10 to 15 minutes understanding that like it's not just an accident it's a fatal accident and like it's Mm -hmm. a different feeling dealing with something like that you start to put the pieces together and you start to figure out like oh we have a real problem here like this is not good it's a it's a difficult thing to deal with so in the immediate aftermath an incident report was completed by the ship's master and sent to the DPA, the designated person ashore. I know that's a term we've used Mm -hmm. in a couple episodes before very common thing to come up in these stories. So this report stated today at about nine 45 CO informed me that second officer fell down on the walkway and lost consciousness. 
The report also mentioned the doctor's assessment that he may have had a heart attack. This is a great example of how those initial reports to come out capture almost none of the story. Right. Just reading that fell down on the walkway and lost consciousness. It gives you no concept of the actual traumatic injuries that were sustained here. Right. So for obvious reasons, the DPA wanted as much information as possible. Yeah. (laughs) You know, from an incident involving the death of a crew member. He requested from the ship's master the closed circuit TV recording from Karina C's starboard ridge roof camera, which was facing forward and had captured events on the starboard walkway. So on downloading this footage and reviewing it himself, the master voiced his concern to the CO that the second officer had been struck by the crane, Hmm. which the CO continued to insist had not happened. Interesting. And so this is, this is the master. Obviously, the master wasn't on scene when this happened. He's going off what he heard. And now he's looking at the video and he's saying it. It looks like he got hit by the crane. And I'll say, too, in dealing with some of these accidents, the CO probably legitimately doesn't think he hit him with the crane. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, in his mind, he's replaying it and he's thinking about what happened. And like, he never saw the guy like. Probably he's not trying to necessarily cover up, you know, anything. I think right. he might legitimately think he didn't hit him. And then you know, when you're confronted with that video, all of a sudden you have to start questioning what you experienced in that event. Something we talk about a lot comes up on a lot of disaster things is the basically the lack of trust that you can put in eyewitness reports on something. I think to kind of bring it to a current event, we were talking about it before we recorded um, the the B-17 air show crash mm-hmm. that happened yesterday. We were talking about that when we were watching all the different videos of it and saying how it looks like a different incident from different angles. And, mm-hmm. you know, it looks like completely different things happen depending on where your perspective is. And it is like eyewitness testimony is so shoddy because mm-hmm. it can't, it you know, without full context, it really can't be trusted. So on May 28th, the master forwarded along the recording, his statement of facts, statements from the crew, and official logbook entries to the DPA for review. So this is a couple of days uh, after this has happened. And it is interesting to note, and it'll kind of fit later with some of the analysis of the incident. It's interesting that the video recording wasn't reviewed immediately. Yeah, that is interesting. And it had to be asked for by the DPA. Um, But again, that was, you know, forthcoming when it was requested. So on June 14th, Karasbrook got a message from the son of the second officer with news Mm -hmm. that he had received an autopsy report for his father. So I'll just add a little content warning here. There's some graphic language here related to bodily injury. If that's not something you're in the mood to hear, skip ahead maybe two minutes and we'll get back to it. So while heart attack had been the tentative explanation for the second officer's death, Mm -hmm. the report came to a different conclusion. And that was hemorrhagic shock, a condition of reduced tissue perfusion resulting in the inadequate delivery of oxygen and nutrients that are necessary for cellular function. Hemorrhagic shock is not something that's associated with heart attacks. Um, It is, however, associated with massive blood loss injuries. Like a crushing type injury? Uh, Yeah, so even something with no visible external injury, Mm -hmm. as the case here, this can be caused by internal bleeding as well. You're you're losing so much blood that it's not getting anywhere that it needs to go. Okay. Uh, So on September 17th, the company received a postmortem report for the second officer, 
So this is months later now we're looking at. The report found that the second officer had suffered, quote, a violent accident death whose main cause is hemorrhagic shock, specifically intracavity hemorrhage caused by visceral ruptures from blunt trauma to the thorax and abdomen caused by falling. Mm. The autopsy found that he had suffered a broken left femur, injuries to the skin of his lower legs and multiple rib fractures, together with lacerations to both lungs and ruptures to both his liver and left kidney. He died as a result of internal bleeding due to organ rupture. Mm. I think I'll take the hypothermia option. And so from seeing all those details, again, this is something that came out in the report. It's very clear that more happened to this person than just a heart attack. Right. Yeah, very clear. If a heart attack had happened, it definitely wasn't the only thing that happened. Right. So with this information, Karisbrook reported the incident to the MAIB on October 9th, 2019. This is five months after this happened. The initial delay here, again, stemmed from the fact that this initially wasn't seen as a, you know, a quote, maritime incident. Right. It's more of a, a workplace incident. Yeah. You know, something, this is a medical emergency. If that initial scenario had been the case, it isn't something that the MEIB would be investigating. Right. Um, you know, they're not investigating a crew member having a heart attack. So there's another somewhat complicating factor that came out of this postmortem report. And it's something that we've never, to my knowledge, had a verified or verifiable instance of on the show. Mm -hmm. The second officer's toxicology report found that the second officer's blood alcohol content was 117 milligrams per 100 milliliters. Um, Therefore, over twice the limit when he arrived on deck. So that's I feel like that's not usually how BAC is given. Not at least in America, at least. at least in the U.S., that's uh, blowing a 0.117. Oh, so compare that to the you know U.S. standard of 0.08 as the cutoff for being legally drunk. That is more drunk than I would want my gantry crane operator to be. Yeah, so if you blow a 0.08, you know if you get pulled over, you are legally drunk driving, and he's above that, and that's at the time of the incident. Right. So he's like. When he's first getting on there, he's going to be even higher than that. Right. So there's uh, there's some stuff that goes into that. The investigation couldn't establish when or how much alcohol had been consumed. One piece of information that is known is that the day of the incident was the second officer's birthday. Oh. So with the vessel's original later departure, it's possible he consumed more alcohol than usual, you know, assuming he had more time. time. There's evidence to suggest he drank with other crew the evening before and or during his midnight to 6 a.m. watch. That's not good. Again, this is all reconstruction. Um, If he hadn't been drinking during watch, he would have needed to drink quite a lot to still have the BAC listed in his tox report. Yeah, that makes sense. He would have had to have been really drunk to still be drunk that, that long afterwards. Assuming that all of that drinking happened before his watch, he wasn't technically drinking on watch. He would have needed to consume at least 20 units of alcohol before he arrived to his midnight watch. So 20 units of alcohol, talking 20 drinks here. Essentially, it'd be 20 shots of vodka, say, right, is what we're... Even if you were a person who drinks quite consistently and quite heavily... That is a lot, um, and yeah. that is enough to to render someone visibly unfit for doing pretty much any kind of job. 
Yeah, I don't. I just don't think you'd be able to function and like sit up at that point. Like you would yeah. just lay down and be a puddle. If that was the case, even even with lax safety regulations, it's it's very hard to think that the CO would have allowed him to go on duty um, mm-hmm. if that's how he had showed up to to his watch. So evidence kind of points to the fact that maybe he was drinking during his watch. So the report concludes this portion saying that it's therefore almost certain that the consumption of alcohol was a significant contributory factor in the incident. Given the circumstances and the evidence available, it's also likely that the second officer drank while on watch and with other crew members. I think the thing that I hate the most in this is that he makes bad decisions and, you know, is visibly or not visibly, but is definitely intoxicated. And then that CO now has to live with the consequences of this accident where the second officer put himself in an awful position. Mm -hmm. It's very unfortunate that these incidences play out like that. Yeah. So talking more generally about safety on the Karina Sea, because there are other factors here also. Obviously, this is a story where the the headline, the, the main thing from this is this guy was drunk on the job and he ended up getting killed. And like, sure, that is a major factor in this. But there's other issues in play also. So when the crane was in motion, either forward or aft, a loud warning bell would sound and there was a flashing amber light on the underside of the crane. Pretty standard stuff. Mm -hmm. There was no warning sounds when the crane was stationary, including when the lift bar was being raised or lowered. If you remember from the narrative part of the incident, this is when the incident happens. It's while the crane was briefly stationary to raise that lift bar over the stack. Mm-hmm. That was when the second officer attempted to get through that gap between the crane and the hatch covers. That just seems like a bad decision. Like you're putting yourself in a crush zone. What it reminds me of most is um, uh, like if you've ever been in a situation uh, where you've been a pedestrian walking through a, a city where there's a, a train crossing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happened, I know, in, in Madison sometimes. And, you know, you're walking, say you're walking to class, you're walking to work or something, and there's a train stopped at the crossing. Mm-hmm. And when that train is stopped, it's it's very, very tempting to just like, I could just, just I could just through. I could just climb through this and I could, you know, be on my way instead of waiting, you know, five, ten minutes, whatever. And you see people do it. There's there's always the chance that that's when the train starts moving. Right. So there were three emergency stops for the crane. There was one at walkway level on the aft legs at each side of the crane and one at the driver position. The MAIB reconstruction of the incident noted that the area immediately under the crane was difficult to see from the operator's position. So this is exactly where the incident occurred. Mm hmm. A person on the starboard walkway became difficult to see once they were within about two meters or about six and a half feet of the crane legs. So in this case, if you've got people sweeping and doing things in the vicinity of where the crane is actively moving things around and operating, you're not going to be able to see a good portion of, of your immediate vicinity. So as we saw in the story, the CEO had to move from his driving position to see that something was wrong. From the position where he became trapped, though, uh, it was impossible for the second officer to reach the emergency stop. That's noted in the report. I think 
more about the lead up to it than the actual moment. Once he became stuck, I don't think that that would have helped at all. Yeah, I think everything's irrelevant after that, right? Yeah. I mean, nothing else matters after he's pinned. Right. Also, I would just have to think, like, hopefully the crew that's sweeping is aware of how difficult it is to see when you're in the crane, because really mm-hmm. that is on everyone else to be out of the crane's way. Like, the crane, you know where the crane is, like, don't get in its way. Right. And, you know, as we said, like, only the second officer and the chief officer are certified to operate it. So it's very mm-hmm. likely, you know, if, if that communication doesn't happen, they're probably the only ones who know how hard it is to see. All right. In which case, you have to wonder about the second officer's awareness here, because he, in theory, should know that the chief officer can't see him. But I guess when you're, you know, 15 shots deep into a bottle of pop-off, you know. You know, that's probably a contributing factor here. So from the report, it has not been possible to determine the second officer's intentions in attempting to pass between the stationary crane and the stack of hatch covers. However, it's most likely that he intended to walk across the port side of the vessel. Seeing and hearing the crane stop, the second officer must have assumed it would be stationary long enough for him to climb onto the combing and to step through the gap. There's no evidence of any communication between him and the CO. Well, that would be a problem. Again, this is all on camera. So there's still shots of that uh, included in the report. And they're really not that far apart. You, you'd you have to think that communication would have been possible. Right. Just a quick verbal notification. Like a wave of the hand, at least, to be like, hey, I'm right here. But again, I mean, it comes down to making this judgment that I can probably get through here, no problem. Like, I've done it so many times before, right? Like, I'm just... So this gets us into a discussion of safe working practices and safety culture on the ship. Carisbrook had a comprehensive safety management system that covered all aspects of vessel operations. Those policies and procedures were clearly articulated, but on board Carina Sea on the 24th of May 2019, several of the company's documented safe working practices were not being followed. So in that SMS manual, safety precautions for gantry crane operation included. Keeping personnel not directly involved in hatch cover operations clear of the area. Uh, So this, I believe, connects with the idea of having that cleaning happen Mm -hmm. basically simultaneous with having the crane in the area moving these things around. Like instead, Um, you should be cleaning, move a hatch cover, go back to cleaning, move a hatch cover. Right. It seems like maybe there wasn't enough definition between those two things. Again, trying to save time. They're on a tight schedule and things like this can happen. So many of our stories involve hatch cover operations. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. You know what I mean? Uh, So another one is positioning crew on both sides of the hatches to monitor walkways and operate emergency stops if needed. That seems like a good precautionary measure. We had people on walkways, but they were there sweeping and cleaning, not monitoring to make sure that things were safe. And another one was ensure good communication among the crew involved, uh, which we know wasn't happening. Um, So none of those measures were in place. The reconstruction confirmed that the CO did not have a clear view of the port walkway or the area directly beneath him on the starboard side. Um, So the report uh, writes, this placed an onus on the crane operator who was monitoring the starboard walkway to ensure that the area was clear before each movement commenced. The report notes that Carisbrook's safety guidelines could have been clearer and more prescriptive about monitoring of walkways. One example is that you know the risk of crushing was not specifically identified. Sometimes in these things, 
uh, it kind of helps to know the find out portion of things to, to better understand why you shouldn't mess around. Yeah, like when you're doing a retail job and they're like, hey, don't mess with the bailer. Yeah. So, however, uh, had the existing procedures been followed, the incident would have been avoided. Kind of coming to the conclusion that, yeah, you can always make safety regulations more specific, but guidelines on paper mean nothing. Yeah, I always find that, you know, working in an industry that has a lot of the same safety precautions, like you can have all the safety rules you want. If someone just chooses not to follow them, they don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to enforce the little safety guidelines, because if you're not enforcing the little things, you end up with something like this, where someone takes a shortcut and it becomes a problem. Fatigue was another factor looked at by the investigation. The second officer had the mandated 10 hours of rest in the 24 hours before the accident. But like we talked about here with this new uh, moved up departure schedule, he was woken three hours into a rest period. This plus the alcohol in his bloodstream increased the chances of him being tired when he arrived on deck. Obviously, that could affect his judgment and his actions. Mm -hmm. The CO had recorded 10 and a half hours of rest in the previous 24, but only four and a half in the 16 hours before the incident. Hmm. That was one of the first things we talked about of him going off of watch and then coming back on three or four hours later. So possible fatigue may have affected his judgment and his caution shown in operating the crane. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fatigue studies that show that lack of sleep is no different than operating intoxicated. Mm -hmm. So if you've got someone who's intoxicated and tired and another person who's tired, that's that's not a great situation. So though the focus of the investigation was obviously on the circumstances around the death of the second officer, other safety violations were noted as well. Of course. One of the able seamen was observed walking along and leaning over the unprotected edge of a hatch. I wouldn't do that. That's a well-recognized hazard in this environment. UK working at height regulations require temporary guardrails or harnesses to be used in these situations, a requirement also included in the Carisbrook uh, safety management system. Neither of those measures were in place on the day of the accident. And again, this is one day of video they're looking at for this incident. They're not going through hours and hours to see if this happens other times, but one has to assume this is probably standard procedure. Yeah, I doubt everyone decided to not do safety just this one day. Safety regulations for masking in dusty environments weren't being completely followed. The able seaman and the deck cadet were wearing face masks and goggles, but the CO and the second officer were not. And I mean, even though it's not really at all related to what's going on, like it just shows you there's two people here that are not valuing safety, maybe the way the other people are. I mean, it's as this report comes to, it is indicative of safety culture, whether that's company wide or specific to the ship, like we just talked about a minute ago, is all of the stuff didn't suddenly happen on this one specific day. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's interesting to look at who is not following these safety procedures. It's yeah. the CO and the second officer, the people who theoretically should be modeling that for the other crew. In any work environment, it, it's hard to follow regulations and guidelines when you see your superiors not doing it. Yeah, it's a huge thing. Um, in, in my line of work, like the biggest thing that we have to enforce is um, like safety toe or steel toe boots like out on the dock. And there's so often where managers, you know, especially like an upper level manager will walk out there in like dress shoes. And it's like, uh-uh, you can't. You're not you're, you can't do that. 
mm-hmm. because you know it's a big safety thing, but it just looks bad. It looks bad when a worker sees someone not following the rules because you know, well, why do I have to wear these uncomfortable shoes then? <laughs> right. The report summarizes the general safety atmosphere on board. Karina C's deck crew were not following the company's safe systems of work, and the tasks being undertaken on the deck were not being closely monitored or controlled. These might have been influenced by time pressures introduced when the vessel's departure time was brought forward at short notice. Furthermore, the second officer was close to the able seaman who was working on the edge of the open hatch and was in the CO's direct line of sight when he started walking towards the moving crane. But neither he nor the CO appeared to be concerned. This was probably because these types of deviations from the vessel's safe systems of work had become common practice and had become normalized on Karina Sea. That's an interesting point, too, that no one seems concerned. Because that does kind of tell you, like, yeah, this this is normal operation. This is one of the still shots in the report. It shows the second officer chatting with the able seaman, the one who is actively violating a, a pretty important safety protocol. Yeah, that's not great. Presumably, that was not the topic of their discussion. Right. So the report was critical of Karisbrook for their, quote, acceptance of the reported opinion of an emergency services doctor unverified by postmortem and the resultant slow investigation into the circumstances of the second officer's death. Um, is that kind of implying that like, if this guy's son hadn't been like, Hey, we have an autopsy report, like this would have all just kind of gone away. I believe so. Um, because again, like that, that sounds like it's disparaging the opinion of this emergency doctor who I'm sure is very well qualified, but again, it's a different focus. Like that, that is not his job to, you know, determine yeah, he's not a coroner. He's not doing an autopsy here. He's working with the information he has and, you know, giving his best estimation. So the idea that that was taken and reported as, hey, this happened, end of story, is a big uh, point of criticism here for the company. So some of the actions taken by Karisbrook in the aftermath of this incident, they updated their gantry crane procedures and vessel-specific risk assessments. They updated the safety management system to ensure all serious incidents are fully investigated until the underlying causes are established. That's probably a good policy. And that goes back to not needing a request for looking at the video. Right. If one of your crewmen is is killed on duty. Everything stops. (laughs) That's something you should be reviewing. Right. Uh, Added additional emergency stops to all gantry cranes. In this particular case, would that have prevented anything? Who knows, but it doesn't hurt. Like, this is something that obviously this is going to hopefully avoid some incidents in the future. Uh, An improved confidential reporting system for employees. Uh, Presumably, this could work for any sort of issue, but I think in this case, targeting specifically safety. Right. Uh, If you are that that able seaman on deck, you know, and you are masked up and following safety precautions, and your second officer isn't, your chief officer isn't, Hopefully now you have a way to get that to someone who can who can act on it. Right. Uh, they reviewed the company alcohol policy and amended it to include more frequent random testing of all crew. And I thought this was interesting. This included sanctions on masters in the event of breaches of policy. Hmm. Yeah, um, makes sense. So punishing not just the you know the person who is either drunk or drinking on duty, but also the master for permitting that sort of culture on his ship. Right. Uh, And it established an anchor line and harness procedure for working near open, unguarded hatches. All of these things were technically on the books already. 
It's just a matter of clarifying, adding some detail, clarifying, being more explicit about things, Mm -hmm. um, which it never hurts. Um, So that, I mean, that kind of wraps up the incident that we were covering here. Um, So again, the majority of stuff we talk about here happens at sea, you know, while the vessel's underway, we tend to take the loading and unloading process for granted as just a thing. Yes, this happened. Let's move on to the real story. Right. And to me, it, I, I think those processes that go into, you know, obviously that's a necessary part of shipping. There needs to be something on your ship. It's a bit like the umpire in a baseball game where mm-hmm. if everything goes as it should, it's not something that should be noticeable in the overall story. It's something we only talk about when something goes wrong. Again, we, we've talked about it with the ferry episodes, but again, you know, it's something where it affected the overall balance of a ship. Stories like this, especially being so recent, they're a, a very good reminder that guidelines in a manual are meaningless on their own, unless there's that, that culture of safety on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, these avoidable a- accidents are going to happen. It's kind of a dumb saying, but like, it's true that like safety is never an accident you have to be intentional with safety things. They, It doesn't just happen. You have to have people that are willing to enforce it when they see an issue. That's the only mm-hmm. way that, you know, you can really be safe in these situations. It also highlights the theme that we discuss a lot is that, you know, typically multiple things need to go wrong or be overlooked for these fatal accidents to happen. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot here, you know, like we, uh, like we said, yes, the, clearest cause of this i mean it's easy to look at this story and say well this person died because he was drunk on the job and he tried to do something dangerous and none of that is false information but there's other uh there's other precautions that should be in place also right if the chief officer is operating the crane more cautiously if he's checking his surroundings before he's moving the crane that avoids this possibly avoids this the general culture of safety, you know, this goes up to the ship's master also, where if that's more thoroughly enforced or even just cared about, you know, on, on the ship, maybe this accident doesn't happen. So yes, it's, it's very easy to gain or to, to blame the one person who sort of jumps out in this story, but it sort of applies to everyone on board. Yeah. It's very interesting. Like the whole, the whole idea of safety culture and safety in these industrial environments is so interesting. I think, you know, you can't discount either the fact that these people work in it every day and it is really easy to get complacent in that, mm-hmm. right? Like, even though it's dangerous, it doesn't, it eventually kind of doesn't seem dangerous anymore. This is kind of a different topic, but I was thinking about this the other day. I was, I was on the highway and someone was merging on and sort of just driving like an, like an idiot. They, they didn't have Illinois plates, surprisingly. That is surprising. And I was just thinking about how, something that's routine even if it's something that is dangerous it becomes boring and i think Mm -hmm. driving a car is a perfect example of that where it's Mm -hmm. something that a lot of americans do every day i do it every morning and it's literally one of the most dangerous things you can do i mean if you look at what people die from in the u.s it's an extremely dangerous thing to do but we don't conceive of it that way you know you're operating a heavy machine that can very very easily kill you or someone else and we we kind of just do it without thinking and i i I see it kind of as a similar thing we talk about Mm -hmm. here if it's part of your routine it doesn't really matter how objectively dangerous it is because you get used to it and you don't think of it that way 
Yeah, I go back to thinking about um, like I work in an office now uh, in an office building, so I'm not around uh, heavy equipment. But when I first started, I was working on the dock as a supervisor. You know, I'm walking around with a tablet strapped to me trying to manage things. Mm -hmm. And I've got 10, 12 forklifts going around me at all times. And at first, you pay a lot of attention and you're really timid. But eventually, like you're just walking, looking at your tablet, doing your thing. And you Mm -hmm. don't think about I could get hit by one of these. And that's not good. Like you eventually just get used to the danger of it. Yeah. And it, it is a dangerous situation. It's, it's very interesting that it becomes not scary. And that's good because I don't think you can do those jobs and be scared the whole time. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're too timid, I think that's also dangerous, right. but you definitely have to still be like aware of your environment and what's going on around you. And so, yeah, these, these safety guidelines uh, come up as being very important and there's, there's really no way to overstress the 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 need to pay attention to those things. Yeah, it is interesting working at a job that we have procedures for. You have had a fatal accident. What do you do next? Like that is an actual procedure that I know for my company. Like it, you know, that's not something you're getting at the accounting office. <laughs> right. It's it's just a little different. So yeah, it's it's very interesting, and it is. It's easy to get complacent in these jobs and think mm-hmm. that you know, well, I cut this corner before, nothing really happened. So it's uh, it's very interesting. It's, I like doing a store like this on the very kind of micro scale compared to some of the large stories that we do because it's such a different, more personalized perspective. I think than just being like, well, eight hundred people died when the ship sank. Like, right. This is the exact opposite of that. All right. So. With that, that wraps up our story on the Karina Sea. What else do we have? Check out our Patreon if you want some more bonus content. Leave us a review. Yep. Uh, we hit 100 reviews on Spotify, so that's awesome. Thank you. Nice, nice. What do we have? Anything to tease? Uh, we're going to keep teasing the Lusitania. That is happening. It's going to be a three-parter, so enjoy that. Yeah, next week we have a guest host... Uh, after that, I think we'll still say as a mystery. And then I believe the next week would be our first Lusitania episode. I hope everyone's ready to learn about World War One politics. So yeah, we'll have a, a three-parter on the Lusitania kind of as our big season finale. We'll, a Christmas gift to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably not have a consistent uh, main episode release, you know, the Christmas and New Year's weeks. Um, I think we'll probably try to do at least some bonus content for our lovely patrons. Um, and then we'll kind of be back to a more consistent schedule at the beginning of next year for season three. Yeah, that's crazy. I can't believe it, but uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to do the Lusitania in detail. It combines our, like my two favorite things to, to learn about, which is ships and world war one. So excited for that. All right. So with that, everyone, take care and we will talk to you next week.